Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. Let's get it done. It's David Summers, and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Okay, Ron, some of us are a little slow, so maybe we won't get it back in time for Christmas. But if I order something from TNstud.com, I'll get it shortly after Christmas, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure at this point. Yeah. If you're getting the order in within the next uh, three or four days, uh, might uh, might still be able to get you some Christmas. Okay, so you <laughs> you might could make it. Yeah, Mike possibly could make it. So, uh, you know, uh, they need to get him in pretty quickly if they want to take a shot at getting it before Christmas. But uh, I would say it arrived before New Year's if you get it in. So you, 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 have, a, you have a friend in the shipping department? <laughs> yeah, we got to do it, man. <laughs> hey, you've got some cool stuff, though. You've got the photos. You've got the T-shirts. You've got the, you've got the book, Brutus, of course, even autographed if we like. So we we could work out a deal with Santa, even even if it comes after Christmas, that's okay. Tnstud.com. Remember that. Tnstud.com. All right, Ron, I gotta start this studcast with your intriguing title for this one. You called it Fans Cry, Bob is Gone. So is this what happened in Southeastern Gulf Coast the week before Christmas in nineteen seventy nine? Yeah, that's basically where we are, my man, and that's kind of exactly what happened, Dave. Uh, Bob Armstrong was there on the on the first night that Southeastern Wrestling made its debut, Dothan, Alabama, March the third, nineteen seventy-eight, and uh, Bob had become uh, maybe the, the most popular wrestler ever in that part of the country, or certainly he was getting there by that point. And by December of nineteen seventy-nine. Bob had more loser leave matches and wins than any other wrestler in Southeastern's 22-month history at that point. So uh, he'd been basically unbeatable in those type of matches hmm. until the third week of December in 1979. All right. I think you were returning to the Gulf Coast from Knoxville on that same week. Did you see any fans crying after his loss? <laughs> Yeah, in every city, man, in which he had loser <laughs> wow. lead matches. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, I saw it, uh, you know, because I, I rode with him on a lot of those trips that week, I remember. And, uh, 
And uh, and I saw uh, you know saw them not only cry, saw them crying after the match, but uh, they would they were waiting on him by the hundreds outside the dressing room to, to say goodbye to him before he left. It was like crazy, you know. Wow! But it was the first time I guess I really realized just how much fans loved him. You know, I was a I was a Bob Armstrong fan. I, I maybe, and sadly, it's not until someone passes you realize. Man, I was a fan of him, and so, and I had the opportunity to meet Bob a couple of times. So, if I remember correctly, a few studcasts back, after you sold Knoxville, and during a meeting with the five owners of Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, Bob said he needed to go home to Georgia to sell his house, move his family down to Pensacola with the rest of you guys, the owners. So, from what I have heard, Bob stayed in the house he bought there for most of maybe the rest of his life. Uh, that's correct. He sure did, Dave. And, uh, and he raised four fantastic wrestling sons during this time frame, too. And, they, and Bob never left that area for 40 years mm. until his passing in 2020. Wow. So when he made, he made the move, he definitely, he definitely made the commitment. I have to bring this up, Stud. We just had a short conversation right before we started recording about a change coming up in the normal weekly studcast schedule so i I think you have only missed one studcast in more than six years that is remarkable a remarkable record you were telling me why you would like to miss one next week and the reason for that did you do you mind uh, talking about that with the listeners the reason no no not at all dave Uh, you know and uh, i have a grandson man who lives in kentucky uh He's about five hours drive north of me. Uh, he's 16 years old. Uh, he's a sophomore in high school. He's six feet, nine inches tall, <laughs> same height as I am. Yeah. He weighs over 230 pounds, and he plays basketball. So, uh, you know, I rarely get to see my son and his family, especially see my grandson play ball. Uh, so next week, He's going to be playing uh, three nights in a row, and when you know it, it's right in the middle of the time that we regularly record these programs. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully, Studcast listeners won't mind me missing one broadcast to be able to see him play three days in a row. Well, Ron, uh, you know you've only done three hundred and twenty-nine. Are you sure you deserve something like that? <laughs> That's a good point, man. <laughs> only three hundred and twenty-nine. Come on. I don't think anybody's going to mind doing that, Stud. You told me you would not be releasing a Studcast next week, right? Yeah, that, that's what it would be. Uh, I would not re- do one on the Wednesday, the regular Wednesdays, where we uh, normally uh, uh, send them out, uh, you know. And uh, I have a great idea, though, to replace it, man. So we normally release these Studcasts every Wednesday. But we are so close to Christmas at this point that I would love to do something, Dave, we've never done for the first time ever. I'd love to release the next studcast after this one, which is going to be number 330 on Christmas Day as a present to the fan. Hmm. And also because, you know, 44 years ago in 1979, on Christmas Day, we were wrestling in Pensacola, Florida, and we had a great card, and uh, that included a special guest for Rob and I at the same time. So, uh Wow, I'd love to do this next one for him and uh, release it on Christmas Day. I think it's a great idea, Stud. A Christmas Day Studcast. So we're going to remind, we'll remind everybody along the way uh, again before this Studcast ends. 
So right now, I want to ask about those mentions you made in the last episode about small changes coming to future Studcast. All right, so I've heard a lot of good comments this week about plans for next year, spending more time teaching and explaining the wrestling business in greater detail. And you've done an amazing job of that along the way. So fans cannot find that kind of information. They can't get that kind of education anywhere else in wrestling podcast period. Well, I like to think that's the truth, Dave. You know, I mean, uh, I know uh, that uh, you don't get much of that uh, with other podcasts. And many of the subjects I have in mind, I think, will be extremely interesting for every fan, uh, you know, and uh, hopefully fans will let me know exactly how they feel about this idea. And uh, I kind of rely heavily on my social media sites. Uh, I just have about 20,000 friends and subscribers, you know, so uh, and I like for them to let me know what they think. And, uh, you know, so they can kind of let me know uh, what they think about that concept. And uh, and so the first one of these subjects uh, I want to begin with in January of 2024. It'll be in the first studcast of that new year. And, uh, and it's going to ride us back, man, into the 1940s. We're going to talk about how my grandfather started creating these boxing and wrestling commissions in states all across the South. Hmm. All right. So I can't wait to hear these stories. I, I remember you talking about a lot of this way back early on in Studcast history, but you also brought up something else very exciting in the last Studcast, the fact that as we move into 2024 and the Southeastern Company year of 1980, we're going to be able to access the first of many Southeastern TV shows. So we will hopefully be able to use the actual audios from interviews and personality profiles and some of those TV shows even from the past. Yeah, you know, it's going to make my descriptions of the TV wrestling shows uh, infinitely better, I believe. Mm -hmm. you know, and pardon the pun, but many fans uh, may be a little tired of hearing everything come straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> All right, Stud, I'm not so sure that's the case when you do start hearing from fans. They love the detail with which you describe things. So some people even say you tell stories the way a good painter paints a picture. So speaking of describing things, Tell us how it felt to be finally leaving Tennessee in this episode. Well, Dave, uh, kind of sad, to be honest with you, you know. Uh, uh, but the past year had been, in 1979, had been such a nightmare, especially the Knoxville War part of it. Uh, it really had started to affect my attitude toward life, to be honest. Uh, I really needed to get out of there, man to get a change uh, uh, about almost everything in my life and kind of basically start all over again. Uh, I'd never pictured it ending this way, you know, and up there in Knoxville having a war and having to walk away from the territory and sell out. So, uh, so I fought to keep thinking that maybe someday in some way I might be going to make a return up there. All right. It's been a long time since you had anything to say about your personal life. So I'm sure some listeners will be interested in hearing about that. Was there anything special, anyone special that was going to be going south with you? Well, I think the last time, man, I probably mentioned anything about something like that was probably a couple of years ago, maybe. Uh, uh, I had met this uh, fiery man, young girl, Greek girl from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, man, that had been with me since basically we opened the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory in 1978. 
And uh, she'd spent a lot of time in Pensacola down there with me in 1978. And uh, she had experienced everything, man. And I had, and I'm talking about in those two years, including the Knoxville, Knoxville war that, you know, really affected me. She had, she had seen all that and been through all that. And, uh, and I got one story that comes to mind on this subject since you brought that up. I mean, we'd, we'd packed up everything in the, in the Knoxville two-story townhouse that I'd been renting there for years uh, and to head to Pensacola and this week that we're talking about. So the night before we left for Pensacola, we even slept on the floor because we packed the bed and everything else. So you know how that is. Sometimes you move and <laughs> you end up uh, not sleeping in the best environment, you know. And uh, and then somehow we ended up in the in the there's a two bedroom place and uh, you know we had an upstairs bathroom. We end up in there and 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 we we things were had been so bad for so long. We just kind of broke down, man. Uh, you know, and we're leaving there and all that and. Because uh, 1979 had been horrible, man, and the, the, the total year of stress, basically. So we cried for a while that night, and, uh, you know, and we decided then to say a prayer for the future, man, basically. So I kind of thank God for all he had given us, and I asked the good Lord to look over us and bless us with this move we were about to make. And when we left the next, next morning, I, I never looked back on anything that had happened there. And uh, we were just days away from 1980 at that point and about to be uh, over the next eight years, we we're going to accomplish more down there on the Gulf Coast than I had ever dreamed we could or would, man. Wow. So it really sounds like he answered your prayers on that one. This has really been an excellent first part of this studcast. But before we take our break, I would love to hear that entire card in Mobile, December 19th. 1979. Okay, we can do that day before we go here. So uh, the opening match with Jerry Stubbs, he was taking on the Mongolian number two, let's call him. Uh, the number one, obviously, was the Mongolian Stomper. This was his son. And uh, that uh, that guy, uh, his son, was managed by the great Mephisto. Uh, Joe Duke was going back to wrestling just one man this time. He'd been in these handicap matches for quite a couple of weeks here now, but this guy that he was wrestling is just about as big as Joe. I mean, he weighed over 300 pounds and he was called the mass executioner. So Joe's going to wrestle one guy this time, but the executioner, uh, wrestling pro was going at it again, man, against the guy that, uh, was out to get him, man, the super pro. And this time that match was going to be a notice qualification match. The next match was the special challenge match. After what had happened to Tony Charles in the last studcast, where uh, the great Mephisto, uh, after Tony won his belt back, the great Mephisto had gone come down to manage Norvell Austin. Mephisto jumps in the ring, attacks him, attacks Tony, and puts him in his, uh, his uh, camel clutch hole. So uh, Tony's going to get his shot at the uh, great Mephisto. Be Mephisto's first time to wrestle, actually. Uh, and then the next match was uh, going was asked for by my brother Rob. And after both him and uh, Jimmy Golden and Rob's match, the week before, his partner was Jerry Stubbs. They were wrestling against the Mongolians for the Southeastern Tag Championship. And along came Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, just like they had a month earlier. And they attacked Rob again. And uh, 
And, uh, you know, uh, then uh, Rob uh, had uh, talked to uh, the, uh, Don Curtis that ran the company about uh, having a mystery partner, having a tag match. And, uh, and he told the mystery partner he didn't want to find out who he was going to have as his partner until the match time came. So then the main event was for the Southeastern Championship held by Bob Armstrong. Had been for quite a while. And he was facing the Mongolian Stomper, managed by the great Mephisto. This time, the belt was at stake. Mm. It was a no-disqualification match. There had to be a winner. And the worst part of it, or maybe the best part, is there was a loser leave for the guy that lost. Wow. That was, uh, I mean, as you said earlier, Stud, a tremendous card. When we come back after the break, we're going to find out what other, what other than the bus pull by Joe LaDuke, what was next on the TV? The bus pull is coming up. That's pretty cool. I got to hear about that on the way when this Studcast continues. All right, Studcast fans, get ready. This Saturday, December 16th, 2023, it's the release of Ask the Stud 12 Question and Answer Show, exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. It's another old-school classic full of great answers from the old-school expert, the Tennessee Stud. Don't forget, the next Studcast will be on Christmas Day 2023, a special broadcast for fans around the world. That's Ask the Stud 12, this Saturday, December 16th, 2023, and Studcast number 330 on Christmas Day, 2023. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in to another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. This is episode number 329, Fans Cry, Bob is Gone. All right, Ron, we're ready to get into the TV show for that great card, Wednesday, December 19th, 1979. Were you on the card or at the TV for this one? Either one. Well, I'd rather not say at this point, Dave. Let's, let's, let's just hang in, hang <laughs> without uh, mentioning that for a little bit here. All right. You know, I will say I had arrived in the territory a couple of days before this TV show. I'd gotten back down there and uh, it opened up the show with the great Mephisto. And Charlie Platt at the set, uh, Mephisto had his tag team champions with their belts on, standing behind him at the set when the show opened. And Charlie, uh, haven't seen the video for the coming week. There was uh, several videos that were going to be shown in this show. Uh, he started out on the great Mephisto right away. He, he asked him right off, he says, why is it that you were involved in three different matches in one night and you put your signature camel clutch hold on three different wrestlers when you weren't even scheduled to wrestle or be involved in those matches. So Mephisto, he didn't answer. You know, he had no answer, actually. And, uh, and he quickly told Charlie, you know, he said, uh, let's run the video from the Infidels Armstrong's match with my Mongolian Stomper. And he said, uh, and then I'll kind of start to explain this to you. And then so... Uh, you know, and he said, uh, I, there was reasons I got involved. So the video started toward the end of the first, the last fall of the Texas death match for the Southeastern Championship match. And uh, when Bob, that's what the match was. And uh, obviously, uh, it didn't have many Texas death matches when it came down to uh, championships. So this was a very unusual match the week before the one they're watching on video. So when Bob got the sleeper hold on the stomper, Mephisto screamed to stop the video. 
And, you know, and, and when it stopped and uh, Mephisto asked Charlie, you know, he said, can you not see they were holding? There was a video stopped. So it showed Bob. He's got the sleeper hold on the stomper. He said, can you not see that American sleeper hold that he's got there? He says, that's clearly a chokehold. And uh, he said, and this was the second time in this match, this death match, that he had put that on my man, my Mongol. And he said he had choked uh, my Mongol out, but he says the American referee uh, wouldn't stop the infidel from doing it. He said he had to be seeing it was a chokehold, you know, and, uh, and he says, I'm sure it was his decision, you know, to allow Armstrong to win, to keep his belt. Uh, so he said, you know, and then the, when the video, he said, okay, you could start the video. And when the video continued, uh, Mephisto pointed out his Mongol, you know, and he said, now look, my Mongol's up on his feet. It's a, it's a death match, but he's risen to his feet. And he goes, but the stupid American referee says, he stops the match and he gives the belt back to Bob Armstrong, knowing that Bob Armstrong hadn't won. And then, and then he and then he took he took off into the wrestling company itself, Southeastern. He said, you know, this wrestling company here, they're obviously prejudiced, prejudiced against my Mongols. And he says, I'd had enough at this point, Charlie Platt, in the match. And he said, I had to do something about it. And he said, I couldn't stop myself, you know. And he said, I, I entered the ring, and he said, I, I, I was already there, and I, and I found myself. I had my camel clutch on this American infidel. To prove to everyone, you know, <laughs> that he, you know, me and my Mongol, uh, we're his superiors. That's for darn sure. <laughs> so then Charlie asked the director to stop the tape at that point. And when it stopped, Charlie pointed out to Mephisto. He says, uh, he says, first of all, he goes, you got no right to be in the ring at all, you know. And he says, on top of that, he says, look at your hold. It's called the camel clutch. And he says, when you normally put that hold on people, I have seen pictures of of that hold, he says, uh, you have your hands underneath the opponent's chin, you're sitting in his back, and you rear back holding his head underneath his chin. He goes, but look at where your hands are there. They're across his throat. Mm. You're choking mm. him. You're holding him back and choking him at the same time. Mm. So uh, Mephisto, he knows, he goes, uh, you know, he, he says, that's not my fault. He says, uh, he says, that 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 Mongol, uh, that, that that infidel here, Bob Armstrong, he says he's got a long chin, an extremely long face and chin. <laughs> and he said, did he change his subject entirely, saying, saying, you know, my Mongol in the next week, he says, he's going to do three things that's never been done before here. He says he's going to take the infidel Bob Armstrong's belt. He's going to become the first person to ever hold all three Southeastern titles. And most importantly, he's going to run Bob Armstrong out of Southeastern wrestling forever. So then he got up from his seat <laughs> and told Charlie, he said something, you know, about, uh, uh, I'm tired of being insulted. I'm not going to be insulted any further by you. Hmm. And, uh, and he took his champion tag team back to the dressing room. Well, that's just what you do. Okay, so a long chin, huh? I never, <laughs> I never noticed Bob Armstrong having a long chin chin all right who was in the first tv match well bob armstrong there uh, the guy with the long chin there you go <laughs> right so and the studio audience they were pleased to see bob man and you know bob usually was on the last match but this time he's on the opening match in this show 
And, uh, and they were especially happy to see that he was still wearing his Southeastern Championship belt. And, uh, and he made those, that, uh, those studio crowd even happier, man. Uh, he put, uh, he put a guy out uh, with, uh, with his sleeper hole, the one that Mephisto called the chokehold. So that's how he won the match. All right. So who was next? Well, it was your man, Dave, the wrestling pro. Yes. And, uh, and he joined Charlie at the set, and he watched his first match, the first official match between the wrestling pro and the super pro. And the wrestling pro was very honest about the match. You know, he gave a lot of credit to the super pro. You know, he basically said, this guy's a lot tougher than what I thought he was, you know. And he says, you know, and he says, especially, you know, since, you know, he had challenged me when he got here, but he's been running for me ever since, you know. And he said, finally, you know, I find out that, that he's not the, the weak guy I expected him to be. So at the end of the video, he told everyone that he could see this was just basically the beginning of these matches between him and, and the Super Pro. And that the next one was a no disqualification match. But he said he already knew. He said, I'm preparing uh, that that's not going to be the last one. I mean, I, this is going to take me some time. This guy's tough, you know. And, uh, and he said uh, that he had spent, uh, you know, much of his career in this part of the country. And he'd made a very good reputation for himself here. And he goes, and then he said, uh, you know, he thought this super pro was uh, probably a younger guy and uh, trying to get a win over him to, you know, simply to make a name for himself, basically, right? So he described the situation between the two of them. It's kind of like he, he was he was kind of explaining what this is going to be like. He said, it's kind of like a gunfight in the old West. He goes, uh, there's an outlaw here, and he's on his way up, man. He's trying to knock off the sheriff. And he says, that's been, uh, that's been the man for years. That's basically the, the real pro in these matches, you know? And he says, but I'm looking forward to the fight. I know this is going to be a struggle, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Hmm. All right. So that was pretty unusual that he put the super pro over so strong and used an example of a sheriff and an outlaw. Obviously, since Leon had been wrestling under that white mask and he was in law enforcement, the Houston County Sheriff's Department for most of his life, actually. So what about the second match? Who was in that one? Well, the young guy that Leon had just described, man, is the young outlaw. Uh, so someone that will, uh, this person, this guy, man, uh, the super pro, is going to, over the next couple of years, he's going to work his way up in this company in Southeastern from being, from being a guy called the super pro to he's going to become a part of the Southeastern tag team that's going to become one of the most famous in wrestling history, the Midnight Express, you know. So, uh, so Bob and Rob, you know, Bob and Rob had been raving to me about this young wrestler, man, how good he was. And uh, so, you know, this is my first opportunity to see him, and I could easily see why they were so excited about him. Uh, but I, I didn't really get excited until I saw the end of the match, and he shot this guy in and clotheslined him. I thought he took the guy's head off. I was like, son of a gun. <laughs> wow, this guy is bad. Wow. I notice you have not given uh, us the name of this young wrestler, only some hints. So what is the reason for that, if I can ask? And it was also time for the personality profile, I think. 
Yeah, so, I, I, you know, the reason I haven't given his name is because I, I want to uh, see how many people remember who he was. Uh, when he arrived and, uh, you know, first time he was ever seen in southeastern Gulf Coast, he was wrestling as a super pro. And uh, we're about to head into 1980, and pretty soon fans are going to find out what his real wrestling name is. But, you know, fans respond to me sometimes, and uh, I like to keep people guessing, and I like to see if they really know who this super pro was. What was his real name? So, uh, so uh, you know, I welcome uh, I welcome the contacts and, uh, and your guesses out there to see, uh, see how many people really know this guy. So, and uh, you're right, Dave, it's time for the personality profile. And uh, when I, when I uh, came, over, came up into the station that day, I saw in the big yard out there uh, a school bus, right? And then we talked about it a little bit last week. The big old yard out there was uh, uh, all flat and uh, nice grassy and everything. So yeah, yeah. before the TV show started, uh, just as had happened uh, two weeks earlier before the show that had the tug of war in it with Joe LaDuke, uh, Charlie Platt, uh, and Joe LaDuke, and two handheld cameramen, and just about everyone that was sitting in the studio before the show started went outside again to see Joe uh, pull the 7,000 pound bus with just his neck and his legs, man. <laughs> all right, so I've been looking forward to this all week. Sorry, I, I never got to, I, I, I hate I didn't get to see that in person. But I can't wait to hear about it. So tell us how it went down. Well, Rob described it for me, uh, you know, because I would see the unedited. I see the edited version later in the actual personality profile. But uh, all the baby faces in the dressing room went outside to see it live as they had for the tug of war. And I heard on the far side of the building that all the hills watched out there as well. They went out the far side of the building and watched out standing out there in the grass as well. So uh, there was this red line that had been painted on the grass in front of the bus and another red line painted on the grass 20 feet uh, further away from the front of the bus. And uh, so the studio fans were kind of standing everywhere around the bus. And the camera started rolling. Uh, Charlie started explaining to everybody uh, what they were about to see. So Charlie had a cameraman go on the bus with him to show that it was a standard city type of bus that picked up citizens every day, you know, and then uh, Charlie put the headgear on Joe that uh, Joe had shown last week uh, uh, in his in his personality profile that uh, uh, gave people an idea of what he wanted to do with the bus. So uh, he put the headgear on Joe and uh, he connected the ropes onto the big loops on both sides of the headgear and uh, then connected the ropes to the front of the bus. And then uh, so uh, Joe positioned himself uh, in front of the bus, and, uh, you know, and uh, and then uh, as far out as the ropes would allow. And uh, he was uh, still going to have to pull the bus, 20 feet, obviously. So Charlie asked if Joe was ready, and he said yes, and Charlie yelled go. And so uh, Joe leaned, man, his body forward uh, until it looked as though he might fall on his face, man. And he's straining, obviously. Wow. Until his face and his head was blood red. Uh, the bus wasn't, the bus, bus uh, did not move an inch for about 10 seconds. It looked like he wasn't going to be able to budget, right? And then finally it started to inch forward. And uh, 
when it did, the studio crowd out there watching, they began to buzz a little bit like, wow, he, maybe he can do this. And then Joe Lagana, as the further he went, the more he leaned forward. And when he did, he kind of got that thing moving. And he had that huge load behind him and the wheels slowly began to turn. And then the crowd responded with, they started chanting, go, Joe, go, go, Joe, go. They were, <laughs> they were into it, man. So, uh, when he was about at the halfway point, the fans could tell he was maybe going to get it done. And they began to cheer at that point. And the bus kept slowly moving forward. And when the bus's front crossed the finish line, the, Joe was mobbed by the fans. Man, they just went crazy. They just covered him up. And, uh, and you could tell he was exhausted. And they had a shot. Charlie tried to talk to him just a second. And uh, he was already sweating, <laughs> obviously. And uh, and you could tell just how much those fans, though, had helped him. Well, you know, by being out there and and and, and giving him that push to make this happen. Wow. So how could something like that and the twenty-man tug of war two weeks earlier not make a huge star out of anyone? Yeah, isn't that the truth? Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, that was the idea behind everything we did with Joe, and uh, and he did all the rest. He was genuinely one of the nicest people on the face of the earth, mm. especially uh, when he was around the fans. Yeah. And, uh, and the best part of about all that, Dave, is it was his true personality. None of that was phony. None of that was faked. He loved people. And yeah. when they got to know him, people loved Joe the Duke. It was amazing. Yeah. So to give you a better idea of what I'm saying, uh, this is this is what, uh, you know, happened after the bus pull, you know, and the fans went back into the studio and they got in their seats ready for the upcoming TV show. Uh, before the show started, Joe went out into the studio and he thanked all those fans for coming out and watching the bus pull and for help cheering him. And then he went around the bleachers and he shook hands and it wouldn't, with just about everybody in the building. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and talking to people. Uh, Jodis had a tremendous personality and, uh, so the personality profile, when it was shown back in the middle of the show with Charlie and Joe, uh, they were sitting right there within a few feet of those fans that had witnessed this feat of strength minutes earlier, a little earlier outside. And, uh, and they had already had Joe come out and thank them and all that. And so during that profile, it was one of the best we had ever seen because the fans were so into it. They just kept clapping and cheering for it, even when they watched him actually pulling the bus for a second time. So uh, Rob said it sent chills down his spine. <laughs> he watching it back in the back. And, uh, and uh, you know, what was going on between Joe and the fans was really phenomenal. I'd not been in this Southeastern Territory for months at this point. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I'd actually been in Knoxville since October of 1979. And I'd seen, obviously, the, the wrestling numbers, the weekly numbers at the matches. Uh, and, the, and I knew the Gulf Coast Territory was doing a lot better than Tennessee. But I had no idea what was really happening down there until I got there. And, and I would soon see all of it for myself. So I knew the plans for Joe. Uh, I talked to Rob, and we discussed it a whole lot. And uh, and uh, we could, if we and we we knew that if we could just get Joe over as a babyface, that potentially what was going to happen at the box office was going to be phenomenal. We'd experienced it in Knoxville, 
when Joe Rasmussen was talking. So, uh, but, but I had no idea until this day how close we were getting, man, to this goal of uh, getting Joe LaDuke over. Wow. If I'm correct, that was the third personality profile in a row with Joe LaDuke. And this one sounds like it may have been the best yet for real. So who was uh, Joe Joe just had that Joe had that way when you even if you were a young person watching on TV, you thought, I like that guy. And I want to I want to know that he had that sort of personality. So it's just magnetic. All right. Who was up next? Tony Charles. And he had won his United States uh, Junior Heavyweight Championship belt back the week before against Norville Austin. And uh, Jimmy Golden had been barred from the building. And uh, so Charlie welcomed Tony to the set. And they were going to watch two things. How Joe, how Tony regained the title and what happened immediately afterward. So uh, Tony started with the fact that uh, Golden didn't get involved in the match. But uh, then he asked Charlie, you know, they're watching the video. He goes, uh, but I didn't understand why the great Mephisto came down with uh, Norvell Austin. Instead of Jimmy Golden, he noticed that Golden was barred from the building. He couldn't come down. But what was Mephisto doing there, basically, right? So then the video showed uh, <laughs> the end of the match. And it showed the spectacular throw that Tony Charles beat Austin with. Wow, it was another one of those I'd never seen. And uh, then uh, it showed uh, Mephisto. As soon as Tony got handed the belt and uh, he was the champion again, Mephisto jumped in the ring, uh, attacked him from behind, and then Mephisto put the camel clutch on Tony after the match was over. And to, to make it even worse, Mephisto, just as he had done to Bob Armstrong in the video earlier in the show, wrapped his hands around Tony's throat instead of his chin, you know, and obviously he, there was a, a real chokehold. He was complaining about Armstrong's sleeper being a chokehold. His version of it was a real chokehold. So Tony asked him to stop the video, and then he told Charlie that he had asked Don Curtis for a match against Mephisto. And uh, he goes, basically, because Mephisto attacked me, and uh, he had no reason to do that. And he said, I also heard that a fact that I had never known that Mephisto was a former world junior heavyweight champion. And he goes, I want to face the best, Charlie. And Tony was like that. He wanted to wrestle the best wrestlers he could. Mm -hmm. So he says, for the first time since Mephisto and the Mongolians have been here, Mephisco's going to get in the ring, and he's going to wrestle me next week. Wow. So I'm sure fans were wondering how good he was after hearing the, that he was a former world junior champion. So who was in the next TV match? Well, uh, Rob had this uh, TV set up pretty good. The guy, the guy that everybody was asking that question about, the great Mephisto, he, was going to, he wrestled on TV. So fans were going to find out right then. They were going to have to wait to the during, to the match during the week, and uh, so they were uh, they were in for a huge surprise. Uh, the the great Mephisto's real name was Frankie Kane, and uh, Frankie Kane was the guy behind the exotic robes and the headgear. And uh, but Frankie Kane was more than just a, a manager. He was one of the best wrestlers in the world, and, and no mm. doubt. And he displayed it in this TV match. Hmm. He dominated his opponent. It was unbelievable. And then they finished by putting the camel clutch on him. 
Except this time he didn't wrap his hands around the guy's throat. He put it on his chin mm. uh, so that he wouldn't get disqualified. <laughs> and he got his hand raised in his TV match. Okay, yeah, there's a little bit of difference between the, the throat and the chin. All right, so last segment of the TV show. Set that up for us. Who was in that? Well, then the TV show started with Robert at the set with Charlie. And he still had a bandage, uh, you know, on his forehead uh, from this tag championship match in Mobile, which was four days earlier at this point. And uh, they watched a video of what had happened in the match between Rob and uh, Jerry Stubbs against the Mongolians uh, for the Southeastern Tag Championship. And uh, when it began, Rob and Jerry were well on their way to winning the tag belts. And uh, when the video showed, it showed them swapping off potential pins. They were just uh, covering the second Mongolian, the, the son of the Mongolian stomper. Uh, they were just about to beat him. Uh, one would cover him, and he'd kick out. He would, they would tag out. The other would cover him. It went on for almost two minutes. It, it, it was amazing how many times the guy kicked out. So from out of nowhere, all of a sudden, in the video, here comes Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin. And they go straight to Rob, uh, almost exactly what they had done six weeks earlier, when Rob and Jerry Stubbs were wrestling the Mongolians for the first time, when Rob and Jerry were, belt, were the champions and they lost their belts that time to the Mongolians because of Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin. So the only thing different this time was how much more vicious their attack was. And the bell was being rung as the Mongolians were being disqualified for the outside interference. But that didn't stop the two Mongolians and the great Mephisto. Uh, you got uh, Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin on Rob, and the three of them just focused on Jerry Stubbs. And then finally, Camel, the, uh, <laughs> the Mephisto puts his camel clutch on the third guy that he's done it. And then one night, he puts his camel clutch on Stubbs. So, uh, meanwhile, Golden and Austin, they had opened up on Rob, man, uh, and they had brought some object to the ring with them, and uh, they busted him open pretty good, man. And then, and then they took turns pile-driving him while the other one jumped off the ropes and grabbed his legs and jammed his head into the mat. I mean, so Rob asked Charlie, you know, to, to, to please stop the tape. Gosh, he'd seen enough, basically. And, and he told Charlie that Stubbs, his former partner, was very upset. And he wanted to get even with the Mongolians, and he had asked for a face-to-face -face match. Uh, he had asked Don Curtis about a face-to-face -face match with one of the Mongols. Uh, he didn't care which one it was next week, and, uh, and uh, Curtis had told him he would do it. So then he said, well, Charlie, you know, I, so he said, since, you know, uh, he got his match, he said, I asked Curtis about a special match that I wanted. And he says, well, you know, he said, at this point, he goes, I, I'm expecting that there's no way I'm going to wrestle either Golden or Austin and not have the other one get involved. So he goes, I asked uh, Curtis, instead of having a single match, he goes, I'd like to have a tag match. And he goes, uh, I want it to be against Golden and Austin. But he says, I want to have a mystery partner. And he goes, it's going to be somebody other than Jerry Stubbs. But, uh, you know, uh, he said, uh, because Jerry's got us matched next week, but he says, I want a mystery partner, and I don't want him seen until until we get to the match time. So Charlie wished him luck on his upcoming tag match with his mystery partner, and uh, told everyone uh, that the next match on the TV was going to be with Rob. 
So Rob had the last match in the show, and he went straight to the ring. And as he was being announced, uh, Jimmy Golden Norvell came to the set. And uh, Charlie, <laughs> Charlie said, uh, "Y'all aren't y'all aren't been invited here, and and I don't want I don't really want you here." So they didn't care. They ignored. They weren't listening to Charlie, so they ignored his request. And they told him, you know, they they weren't aware. They said, "We don't know nothing about this scheduled tag match with Robert and his so-called mystery partner." He goes, but uh, you know, they said it didn't matter either way. You know, he says uh, they said uh, Rob's right. You know, uh, we are going to gang up on him every chance we get, right? So, uh, so at this point, Rob's taking care of business in the ring, and he's making pretty short work, man, out of his opponent. So Charlie asks Golden and Austin again. He says, all right, guys, you've had your little say. Well, how about leaving the set? So Golden then says to Norvell, he goes, uh, and he says to Charlie, he says, you know, I think that's a good idea, Charlie Platt. And then he says to Norvell, he says, don't you think it's about time we uh, maybe take uh, right now that we kind of gang up on the fuller? <laughs> no, okay, yeah, let's do that. Right? So they just went straight to the ring, right? And Charlie's screaming him for, no, come back here, don't worry. So, but it's too late. So they both hit the ring and they started on Rob, man. And uh, Rob was really fighting back until they got him bleeding again, right? Uh, so, uh, then, uh, the, you know, the, they grabbed the referee. They threw the referee over the top rope. They got rid of him, basically. And then Jerry Stubbs came to the ring, trying to help Rob. But the the, one, the Mongolian that he's going to be wrestling the next week, he came out and just uh, he grabbed uh, Stubbs, pulled him off to the side, and they started fighting out on the floor. So the uh, studio crowd was going crazy, man. Uh, and they started, uh, you know, so Golden and Austin went back to Rob. They would just kept doing what they were doing, and the wrestling pro then came to the ring, and he slid into the ring. He was, and uh, before he could even get up and uh, go to help, uh, the super pro pulled him out onto the floor, and they started fighting. So Bob Armstrong came, and uh, you know Mongolian Stomper did the same thing. He went and grabbed Bob, you know, and uh, boy, it was it was pandemonium in the building, man. Wrestlers are fighting everywhere, and. So I was the mystery man as Rob's partner in the upcoming tag match. I didn't want to be seen at this point. But uh, all this is going on, and Golden and Austin are beating the heck out of Rob. So, uh, you know, there wasn't a fan in the Gulf Coast that had seen me in months, and I hated to show myself, man. I let the cat out of the bag, basically. But, heck, I had no choice at that point. So as soon as uh, I left the studio and, and – Get left the dressing room and, and they saw me in the studio. Boy, I got a big pop. The roof came off that place and I started on Golden and Austin. They ran for the dressing room and it took a couple of minutes for things to settle down around the ring in the studio. Uh, and then uh, after they got the studio cleared uh, and they got the wrestlers back in the dressing room, then I made the last interview about the upcoming tag match that I was going to be, there's no mystery about the partner, and uh, me and Rob are going to take care of business. Wow, that's a really a fantastic TV show, no doubt. It had almost everything you could think of, especially the ending. Too bad you couldn't have made it to the arenas before revealing yourself. So what happened in Mobile the following Wednesday night? Well, Jerry Stubbs won his match with the Mongolian, uh, Joe LaDuke, 
He not only beat the 300-pound executioner, he took his mask off, too. So Joe's, Joe's kicking butt. I mean, he's, he's really, really making a name for himself at this point. Uh, the wrestling pro and the super pro went at it again. Just as bad and as violent a match as the week before. Uh, it was a no-DQ match this time, and it was finally stopped. But uh, only when the super pro left the ring and he went back to the dressing room. Uh, so, you know, they, there was no, no clear cut winner to that one for sure. The Tony Charles challenge match with the great Mephisto ended up in a disqualification of Mephisto, but, uh, Tony wasn't finished with Mephisto. There's going to be some more of that. And in the tag match between Rob and I against Golden and Austin, the referee got hurt toward the end of the match. Uh, he was out on the floor. Uh, we were all four fighting everywhere, all over the building. And, uh, and then the Mongolian stomper comes down and he jumps me. Uh, I don't know why that would have that happened, but, uh, obviously Bob was watching the match. So he came down and he got in it with stomper and they fought up into the ring and golden and Austin headed for the dressing room and me and Rob chased them there, man. And we couldn't catch them uh, because they were really, they weren't taking any chances. It was mobile. So the great Mephisto, uh, at this point, came down the ringside. Uh, you know, the Stomper and Bob are already there fighting. And, uh, you know, he ba he nailed Bob from behind. He threw him out of the ring. Stomper went out of the ring, grabbed Bob, and uh, ran him into the steel ring post. Our match hadn't even started. Hadn't even been introduced. And Bob's already got a big cut. And about that time, the second referee assigned to the last match. He finally got down to the ring and... The ring down to the ring, and uh, no one was sitting down in the building. I can tell you, man, they were really, really up, and uh, and they never did sit down. Bob came in; he was bleeding. They introduced him. They introduced the match. Uh, they started into the match, and uh, so <clears throat> at the end of the match, Bob got the sleeper hold on the Mongol, uh, and he grabbed uh, the Mongol. Reached out. The referee standing in front of him. Uh, he's checking his hand. Mongol reached out, grabbed the referee, jerked him in face first into Bob. And uh, all of them went down. Mongol went down too. Uh, so did Bob and the referee. And uh, here comes Mephisto. Man. And uh, he puts the camel clutch on Bob again, choking him again. And uh, then when he sees the referee moving around, he turned Bob over, dropped him, turned him over on his back. And he put the stomper on top of him and left the ring. Referee rolled over there and he counted Bob out. Uh. Uh, and it took every one of the policemen in the building, man, to get the Stomper and Mephisto back to the dressing room. Wow. And, and I already explained kind of what I saw after the match, you know, uh, at the first of the show here, you know, mm -hmm. about the affection from the fans, you know. Uh, so, uh, and I'll never forget, man, how the Mobile crowd in particular dealt with, uh, with Bob's loss that night. Wow. Okay. How about the attendances in those three major cities during that third week in December, 1979? Well, it's pretty amazing, Dave. Uh, almost unheard of actually, man. We were one week before Christmas and every one of those three cities crowds got bigger. So Montgomery went from 2,300 up to 2,600. Uh, Dothan went from 3,300 to 35. And Mobile went from 39 back over 4,000 to 4,400. So all three of the cities combined had an increase of more than 1,000 fans 
one week before Christmas. Uh, Christmas was six days away, as a matter of fact, uh, from the Mobile Show. Okay, so from what you have said about the difficulty of drawing crowds that time of year, that had to be a good sign of what was to come. Guess what, Stud? You're never going to believe it. We have time. I'm going to force it in. It's a learning tree question. So let's get to it. Want to do it? Want to do it? Cool, man. Let's do it. All right, here we go. This one comes from Tom Doss in Paul Mall, Tennessee. He asks, in the YouTube match you and Barry Windham had against Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen in Japan, it seemed like they were pretty stiff competition. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Mr. Doss, uh, you know, uh, I bet you got the idea for this question from one of my recent. Uh, I've been doing these when wrestling was wrestling uh, posts. Mm-hmm. on my mm-hmm. social media sites mm-hmm. and this last one i did uh, had a photo of the giant baba uh had his foot he's standing up and he had his foot stuck in the face of harley race <laughs> man it's a great shot so i guess mr dawson you obviously a lot of people have seen that on youtube with me and barry windham uh, against brody and hansen so uh you know uh let's talk a little bit about wrestling in japan as a whole i mean uh Wrestling in Japan, that has the stiffest competition in the world, man. And by stiffest, I mean, uh, wow, everybody just kills each other. <laughs> so, and I've been in a lot of places in the world to wrestle, so I have a pretty good idea of where the where wrestling is at its stiffest. And I think it's probably in that country of Japan. And everybody, you know, especially the Japanese wrestlers, uh, were very stiff, you know. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't mind it. You know, a lot of guys go over there and they complain. Uh, and I used to talk to Rob, said, you ever go into Japan? He goes, no, man, I'm not going there. Why would I go wrestle over there? Right? Because, <laughs> you know, it's a tough place to go. So, But I never minded it because a lot of guys always said I was stiff. So I was like, well, heck, it's okay. I can handle it. That's kind of the way I wrestled most of the time anyway. So, uh, but there was a no pair of wrestlers in Japan, I can tell you this, that even compared to being stiffer than Brody and Hanson, those guys were unbelievable. Wow. And they, 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 <laughs> and they, they even had a way, of, they started their, their thing before they ever got to the ring. When the bell rang for them to come out, uh, Brody come out with a lasso, a rope, and a chain, and Brody come out with a chain and Stanson to come. Hanson would come out with his rodeo rope. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they would be, uh, the, you know, swinging those chains and those rope, and and the Chinese, the Japanese would be rushing them, and they would just be taking the feet out from under them, and oh, they leave a uh, they leave a path of bodies laying <laughs> between the ring and the dressing room <laughs> before they even got to the ring. And when they got to the ring, they never went down the aisle where they were supposed to. They would go to the back of a ringside section and they would go through that section. Show the chairs all over. It was like, gosh almighty, it was pandemonium. So, so you know, the, it was a, nobody was compared. Nobody compared to them, man. And, and that YouTube match that you're talking about here, Mr. Doss, uh, with Barry and I, uh, that happened to be the first night we wrestled in Japan. 
And uh, we worked with Brody and Anson. That match that you saw, uh, in the, the match was in Osaka, Japan. We had traveled there on the bullet train the very first day we got there. And that night, uh, we wrestled Hanson and Brody on TV. And the fact that it's TV, it means that they're going to be stiffer than they usually are. Right? I mean, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be horrible. It's a horrible experience, right? So, and, you know, and, and again, almost all wrestlers work a little stiffer on TV. And uh, so, you know, the guy, these guys were already stiff, so it was unbelievable. So, uh, Tom, uh, you know, I... Uh, I guess uh, my answer to you is yes, uh, it was a very stiff match. Let's just put it that way. You know, and, and as soon as Brody and Hanson, that match was over, uh, when me and Barry finished the match, we went right straight through the dressing room and out the back door and caught a cab back to the hotel, right? And, uh, you know, and, and, and for... For those listeners out there that uh, may not know who Barry Wyndham's father was, Barry Wyndham's father was Black Jack Mulligan, mm. uh, 330 pounds and 6'8". <laughs> I mean, uh, Black Jack was a bad dude himself, right? <laughs> so uh, so when me and Barry get in the cab, and uh, and we're both still huffing and puffing <laughs> from, from the match and trying to catch our breath, and finally I look over at Barry and I say, uh, what did you think of that match? <laughs> and, uh, and it was one of the best answers I ever heard, I believe, from a wrestler. Uh, I'll never forget it. And he's huffing and puffing. And he goes, you know, Ron, he says, my daddy never beat me like that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you two, Barry Windham and you, you, it had to be like the Twin Towers. How tall is Barry? Barry's about six five, six six. I thought so. Yeah, I thought he was a he was a pretty big guy. Also, you two had to be look like the twin towers together. <laughs> yeah, it was a, he was a great partner. I really enjoyed wrestling with Barry. Uh, we were there for we were there uh, actually we were there for eighteen days, man. Uh, uh, and <laughs> it was an eighteen day tour, and and we had guess how many nights we had off in eighteen days? I would say zero. We got one night off. Wow. Okay. You lucked out. But that's <laughs> so after weeks in Japan, yeah. just like all other wrestlers, when you go to Japan, after you spent weeks in Japan, you come home and take off for a month to get well. Wow. Plus that line, my daddy never beat me like that. That's absolutely awesome. I, I that that had to be one of those awakening moments once you two uh, got in the vehicle together. Listen, I love these studcasts. What a t- what a tough way to make a living traveling halfway around the world to just get stomped on. So we never know what you're going to say, Ron, or give us to think about this one. Like all the rest has been so full of information and wrestling history. I can't wait for the next one. In fact, where are we going to be riding in the next one? The stud cast, the next one is going to be number three thirty. Where do we go there? Well, Remember, you know, uh, when next week uh, there's going to be no studcast. We talked about this earlier, and and I'm going to uh, go see my son. Hopefully, play basketball in Kentucky. Uh, then uh, the next studcast, which is going to be number three thirty, it's not going to be released uh, on the, the normal Wednesday. It will be released about five days after that on Monday, December the twenty fifth, on Christmas Day. And uh, so, and it happens to be exactly the same day, 44 years later, 
that in Pensacola, uh, we're going to be uh, talking about this next card. And that next card is going to be really something special, man, on a very special day. Uh, it had two championship matches on it, this card in Pensacola on Christmas Day, and, uh, and it had uh, uh, a Texas death match between the wrestling pro and the super pro. They had a six-man tag with the Mongolian Stomper joining forces with uh, Golden and Austin. And they're going to face uh, to me and uh, Rob and uh, my dad, buddy. And wow. um, our father hadn't been there, basically. You know, he was a huge star in that part of the country in the 50s and the 60s. So, uh, And he was still a pretty darn good wrestler at this point, you know, even though he was in his 50s. <laughs> uh, he could still go. And so... We're going to have a heck of a card, and the next one we'll be talking about, that's going to be on Christmas Day, uh, coming up here. And then I will also be, uh, it'll also be the last studcast we're going to have about 1979. Hmm. Thank goodness, in a way, Dave, I hate <laughs> to say it, but we're about to finish 79, man. Wow. And I'm going to take a little time, as I always do, on the last uh, studcast, about a year, to kind of wrap up the year, man, and Kind of looking forward to it and, and kind of not <laughs> because of the year it was, right? But uh, then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, man, where we're headed, man. We're going into a new era, a new decade. Uh, Southeastern is going to be, uh, well, the sky's the limit. That's basically what it's going to be for Southeastern. In 1980, the sky is going to be the limit. Wow, that's awesome. All right, folks, you know the deal. Find Ron on Facebook at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there. Automatically become friends with a living legend. On Twitter, or now known as X, Twitter, find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Same thing there, and follow him there, too. Check out the fantastic website at tnstud.com, tnstud.com. As the stud said, you might get it back in time for Christmas if you get your orders in now. And if you don't mind, it might come a day or two after Christmas. This studcast is going to be there tnstud.com with every stud cast ever done shop the stud store you can get 43 super stud casts four different 8x10 photos of the stud the thrilling lion novel brutus even personally autographed to you if you so choose and t-shirts on special for christmas $15.99 that's a great deal on those stud t-shirts Subscribe now at YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. Get the best in old school wrestling. On YouTube, it's so simple in the search bar. Put in Southeastern Rewind. It's the first one that comes up. You'll find 372 videos. The last 106 stud cast, including this one, 52 stud stories, 88 short rides with the stud. Now 11 great Ask the Stud question and answer shows. And on Saturday, December, 20, uh, December 16th, 2023, Ask the Stud number 12 will be there all exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind, the best deal in old school wrestling. Any final comments today, Stud? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, <clears throat> not going to be uh, back on until Christmas, and I want to wish everybody out there a very Merry Christmas, and uh, thanks to all of all of you that supported me over the years. Uh, take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. 
For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.